Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today we have a double feature of both Skinnamarink and Megan. Join me today. He treats animals that wander onto his property with respect. It's Daniel Lima. Daniel, what's going on? Oh, you know it. I've got my cat right here with me. You know, we're ready to talk about, uh, you know, the, the double bell, like, you know, made for, you know, mass appeal. Yes. And uh, we had to pull him away from his Legos, but we're very happy to be joined by Gage Eggleston. Gage, what's going on? I was actually not a Lego kid. Oh. I wasn't not creative enough, not smart enough. Oh, uh, yes. We know you were. We know you were. They just couldn't <laughs> handle your genius. That's what it was. I, I, whatever side of your brain Legos is, I'm the other side. I think I had more generic Legos, but I was never like into them enough to, you know, like buy the Star Wars Legos or anything like that. I, I don't think I ever cared enough about them to like insist on that as like a Hanukkah or birthday present or something like that. But like they were around, you know. Well, I, I actually, I Legos, we, we were very popular at my house. We had Legos, we had blocks, we would make little cities and such. I remember the first day we got our dog Clifford, we were trying to decide on a name and then he just started walking across our city that we built out of Legos and such. And we, so we named him Clifford after Clifford, the big red dog. Well, that's, that's nice. It's funny. You mentioned your, uh, your house and your toys and your dog, because we're about to talk about some little kids and some houses and toys and stuff like that. And I'm wondering around, but yeah, Skinnamarink. That's where we're starting new movie from writer, director, new on the scene, Kyle Edward Ball at the Canadian production. Uh, it's set in 1995 where we wake up and we kind of hear, cause we don't really know what kind of movie we're getting ourselves into. We hear a four-year-old Kevin, he's kind of, he's hurt and uh, his, you know, he has a sister, she's six named Kaylee. She talks about him sleepwalking and kind of, you know, we see them wondering, we hear things around their house. We kind of learn that their father has, we, 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 I guess we hear a little bit about their father, but then all of a sudden he's gone and they're, they're confused. And it seems like the windows, their doors are gone. And, Guys, I'm not, this movie kind of defies, you know, plot descriptions. I'm going to stop here basically and just say <laughs> we're in for a long night with them. It was also weird was that like the theater I saw Skinner Marink at, it was, it wasn't like my usual AMC because I didn't realize that was going to get it when Daniel insisted I see this one because he wanted to talk about it. I was like, all right, I'll make the effort. I'll drive up to my, the, this other theater that's uh, CMX that's about 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes north of me. And like that one doesn't have, I, I've, I have like AMC, like time to a science on when the, when the previews are done. And I know like, okay, well, if that's the last preview, there's still going to be the Nicole Kidman commercial. Like I have time to like, you know, get back and go, go to the bathroom one last time. Uh, not so much at the CMX. I think I came in like 45 seconds to a minute into the movie. So it was just very weird to already be dropped into this thing without knowing exactly when it started. And so, you know, you, it's just, you don't really like, you're like, wait, am I like watching some weird, like connective scene right here where all of a sudden I'm going to be back in a regular kind of shot movie? Movie with a person on the screen, not so much because uh, Skin and Marink, you know, has its own different style where it's like, you know, focusing on different things, not so while not being so much in focus and you're really hearing more and not always hearing that clearly, but you're seeing things from the perspective of a child of, of a couple of children that have just been left alone and shot from that perspective. They're not always clearly in the frame, but it drops you in for a long night of being, you know, kind of facing with a lot of the fears that a, a young per, a, a young child might face when they find themselves without any super adult supervision at home. It's just a very unconventionally made movie. And I think not surprisingly been very divisive. And I, I don't know if I had as strong of a negative or positive reaction to it as a lot of people did, but I know uh, both Gage and Daniel had strong reactions to the movie. And that's why I was kind of excited to talk about it. Uh, Daniel, I'm curious because, I mean, both of you guys are pretty big horror guys. I guess I'll start with you, Daniel. Daniel, And uh, I don't know what you knew about the movie going in, but like based on the kind of horror movies that like you normally like, when you jump into something that as unconventional as this, 
how long did it take you to like be like, all right, I'm in on this kind of conceit and idea? Well, I should note that, um, like you said, this isn't normally the kind of movie that I like. I like my visceral horror. I like slashers. I like stuff that really pushes the boundaries of good and bad taste, you know? Um, So something like this isn't necessarily my go-to, but I went in kind of hearing about the buzz, hearing about how it, uh, the, the line that most people said was that it kind of like harkens back to like childhood fear and fear of the dark and the unknown when you were a kid. So I had that in mind. And also, uh, funnily enough, like the last movie I saw last year was uh, Gene Dealman, uh, the greatest movie ever made, as we all know, uh, like, you know, as we've all been saying. Um, I saw John Dealman and like, you know, I saw that at home. And there was a part of me that wondered if by, I saw. By, by the way, not to cut you off, but at the at the end of the podcast we did on the Pinocchio's movies, I think Josh uh, plugged that one and told me about how you identified one of the characters as looking like me, but I hadn't actually seen it yet. So like, I pulled up the letterbox uh, page for Gene Gene Yeoman, and like the cover photo for the movie has that guy on it. So if you want to, if you make it all the way to the end of the Pinocchio episode, you can witness me seeing this guy for the first time. You decided looked exactly like me and had the same manners as me. And now it's like, do I want to watch this three hour movie just to possibly be offended by that? As much as I'd like to say, I've seen the movie that's number one on sight and sound. Well, First off, he does look like you. But secondly, but secondly, <laughs> um, the, the the fact is that, like, I wondered that if maybe I saw a movie like that in a theater and was able to get into the rhythm of it in this kind of space, you know, in this, you know, space with like an optimal sound system with a with a crowd that is also there prepared for this kind of movie. Maybe I would have gotten a little bit more of that experience. So going into this, I was very excited to see it in a theater. Um, I saw like the earliest showing on like a Thursday, you know, it was like five other people, all of them clearly they knew what they were in for. And uh, ultimately, I found myself rather spellbound, like from the jump. Um, I, I think Gage can I'm going to throw to Gage for the more like technical stuff. But um, it's pretty much like shot digitally, but shot on like very grainy sort of digital footage. You know, uh, I think it's post, right? Yeah, from what I read, uh, they actually shot this on a Sony FX6, which is actually a camera that only came out a couple years ago. But obviously they pushed it and did all kinds of crazy things to the post um, to make it look more filmic, specifically like like a 1970s film stock with the, the film grain overlays they're using. That's like a huge part of the movie. And to me, one of the most interesting parts is that they don't really try to justify the use of that type of footage like it's it's not a found footage movie but it's shot like one and it takes place in 1995 but it looks like it's from like the late early 70s and the movie makes really no attempt to explain why it looks the way it does which um i i respect i think i think it's a cool move especially to do that digitally you know it's not a flawless film like if you if you're looking with a with, with a sharp eye, you can tell that occasionally the film grain is being looped or played in reverse, and you know it, it's clearly not organic. They didn't shoot it on film, but again, this is a movie that was made for fifteen thousand dollars in uh, a guy's basement, and I saw it in theaters, so I got to respect. Like you said, it's a very loose narrative. You get a little bit of like stuff about maybe this kid hurt himself, maybe he's in there. They live in a house with you know their parents, but you never see their parents. You hear your the dad, but you never see the parents at all. You never see the kids at all. Like you just see shots of their feet, their hands, you know, the back of their head or whatever. Quick, very quickly, they are abandoned, and 
It's just them trying to survive a very long night. The, the, the house, the windows and the doors have disappeared. And it's just them two alone without their guardians, without their protectors with them. And I found that all the things that people said about it hearkening back to childhood, like it really did work. It really did affect me. It made me think about growing up, being alone, at, being at night, wandering around the house and like seeing figures that maybe are there, maybe are not. It reminded me of being with my brothers while my mother was at work. The sun setting and you don't quite know when she's going to be back, you know, era before cell phones. And, you know, it's just you guys holding on to each other, you know, trying to make it through. Well, I was going to get at that because, I mean, you talked about that a little bit in your letterbox review. So I'm not getting too personal by noting that you kind of like were moved by some memories of your own childhood. And I'm wondering, like, personally, I think maybe part of the reason I didn't have as strong of a reaction is because I, I don't necessarily have those same specific types of memories from childhood, it, just of being left at home. I don't think I was ever left at home. I don't think my parents ever left us at home by, by ourselves. So I was like maybe like 14 years old or so uh, or for more than like a, you know, for more than like less than an hour. Maybe my mom ran to the store or something. But as far as like, you know, you don't need to have a babysitter anymore. Like, I mean, you know, I, I was like probably close to 14 or 15 years old. So I don't necessarily have any memories of like wandering around a house in that regard, but I'm wondering, you know, this movie, like it, it takes its time. I think that's part of the reason it's probably been pretty divisive. It's, it's pretty slow to start out. And, uh, and, but it certainly ratchets up that intensity and ratchets up some of that, that, that fear that it can, it, I'm sure it just kind of like, you know, provoked in its audience, but I'm wondering like, was there a certain moment where, uh, while this movie is very distinctive and making a lot of really unique visual choices right from the outset, as we've already discussed, was there a moment that you specifically like st- as you were sitting there in the theater where something kind of just hit you in a different way and started getting at you in that personal at that personal level? Because, I mean, again, it looks like it's out of a different time, but like it, a, a lot of the choices they're making, though, are still going to evoke emotions regardless of in certain audience members, regardless of how old they are. Was there a moment where you're like, oh, wow, this is really like. All, all of a sudden starting to st- stir some fear in me in a way that I wasn't expecting. No, not quite. Uh, yeah. There's no particular specific moment, mm-hmm. really, because the movie for, you know, it's what, an hour, 40 minutes, I think, um, for yeah. like for like 40, 45 of those minutes. Like, you know, it is just, you know, shots of static shots of hallways and, you know, door frames and ceilings and, you know, the children's limbs, the TV screen playing these cheap <laughs> public domain cartoons, you know, uh, one of which is that uh, a Bugs Bunny cartoon, which I'm, I remember having that cartoon on VHS. So, I mean, that took me back also watching on the tube TV, you know, these like this, <laughs> these cheap public domain things you'd find on like VHS and such. I just, does put you in the mindset of a child who doesn't fully understand the world around them, uh, you know, who looks into the darkness and, you know, sees in that the fear of the larger world, you know, and, you know, you're trying to, you know, like I said, in the dark, make out these shapes, trying to get a sense of place and where you are. But in the dark, even, you know, your home can feel alien and alienating. So, yeah, I mean, it, there was no particular specific moment it just didn't take very long for me to get into the rhythm of the thing, you know? Uh, sure, Gage. Sure, Gage. What about you? Was there like kind of a, I, and I know you kind of already talked about how you didn't necessarily think it was a perfect movie. And I want to kind of get at that because I think, I mean, it's just really unique in the ways you even would think about criticizing a movie that just kind of spits in the face of the idea of plot like this one does. Was there a moment, the the filmmaker in you, was there a moment where you're like, oh, well, like, hey, this visual choice he made there, like I'm really digging that and that's kind of engaging me on a different level or were you just like, was it kind of the similar where it's just like, oh, wait, okay, wow, this whole entire enterprise is like making me feel something I don't normally feel at the movies. 
early on, you know, there's the scene where uh, the kids have to go upstairs and the voices of their parents start talking yep. to them and say, you know, look under the bed, which is kind of a classic horror trope at this point because it's such like a visceral, primal feeling of fear that's really easy to access in movies. Like looking under the bed is going to be a scary thing no matter how shitty the movie is. Sorry to interrupt, but like this is also the one segment where it switches to an actual POV shot, right? Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, there, there's there's a, a few instances that I figured it was kind of a POV first person kind of camera, but this is definitely the first time it does that. Mm-hmm. In mostly in a movie like this, the more abstract, you know, artsy fartsy horror movies, sometimes you kind of lose the tension because you think that they, this movie kind of feels like it's above doing a jump scare. Like I have nothing to be afraid of. This movie can't actually build tension because it's not that kind of horror movie. But Skinnerink is that kind of horror movie. In addition to you know the more I guess thoughtful kind, where you know it does punish you with like a brutally loud jump scare several times. So, you know, it's rare for me to be scared by movies. Uh, but this one, I was like kind of clenching my fists the entire time because I knew that it was for real and it was going to scare me. And then eventually towards the end, when it becomes more surreal and like more of like a descent into hell type of deal, uh, it scared me in a completely different way, which was more psychological. Daniel, what did, what did you think about that kind of turn at the, that it makes at the end of the movie where it seems like Gage had a bit of reaction to it, but I do have my own thoughts I want to add. Well, uh, I do want to second what he said about that that scene. I forgot I had forgotten that that scene when when that scene comes up. That yes, like I, the fact that, and it also, I think it, it gets to some of the, I guess more like it's it's one of the first hints that there's like of like a I guess plot you could say, in the sense that you get a sense of that these kids' parents are like going through like a divorce or maybe they're in an abusive relationship or something like that, and like you can see the kids trying to piece that that out through like the sort of apparition or ghost of their parents and like you know it's one of those things where like it is a scary scene it reminded me of like you know when i would be in bed and think that there might be something in the house you know Um, i actually have a funny story about that that is a little past childhood um that we can save for the end of the episode as a little treat Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for the most of it, it is like a mood exercise and it's a mood that I was getting into, but toward the, I guess, middle, maybe toward the end of the movie, the kind of that sort of primal sense of fear becomes kind of personified, kind of like there is an actual apparition. Well, I, I think me and Gage talked about this, that you could take that apparition, the more supernatural turn that the film takes to be like more surreal. You could interpret it as like a a sort of like representation of, you know, the abuse or trauma or whatever is going on in that household that these kids are trying to contend with. That is only, you know, appearing to us, the viewer, as a sort of apparition, you know, to convey that sense. It's one of those things where like those moments are actually very unnerving in a way that I think most, most movies about like ghosts and apparitions kind of aren't like that put the knife in your eye moment, like that sent chills up my spine, you know, like it, it did actually unnerve me in a way that most horror movies just absolutely do not. And in spite of the fact that, you know, it's a movie where you see very little that more is implied than anything else uh, toward the very, very end, sorry to jump so far forward, but um, toward the very, very end, like you get a shot of like, uh, like there's like just the wall and then, 
blood pooling onto the wall and then reversing and then pooling. And you get this idea that like this demon or entity or whatever is like torturing this kid for kicks. And that freaked me out more than I think any horror movie that I saw in theaters ever had. That moment actually has stuck with me so long since I've seen the movie. I remember walking out of the movie and thinking it was good and that I would probably never watch it again. And like, it's probably like a three and a half star movie. Mm. But in the time since, like I've had actual nightmares and like had trouble falling asleep thinking about just that scene with the blood kind of spattering and unspattering because I guess it's just something I've never seen in a movie before. The idea that this like, child that is so young that it can't even properly form words correctly is being eternally punished in hell for no reason <laughs> and is completely alone. And then the movie just fucking ends. <laughs> it's, it's haunting stuff. And you remember the, the, the entity like had uh, the re- the reason given was just kind of for why it would even in taking an interest anyways in the, the brother is that it had already taken the sister and it had yeah. taken the sister because she wanted what is it that it said that she kept asking for her mommy for her parents so i took her to them or something like that and that's just the idea that like that that safety that you so crave as a child could just end up one day not being there yeah i guess it's funny you made the comment about like it being a little up to interpretation the extent to which there was any kind of apparition or supernatural presence or something like that because i think my overall problem with the movie because i've barely really given any of my thoughts because i just frankly don't really have as many i'm in the camp of people that like kind of respected what the movie was ultimately trying to do but like just the way it went about it just makes is it's just it just results in the kind of movie that's just not for me but like i don't mean but i I don't really necessarily look at it too negatively because of that because it's obviously for a lot of people just it's not my thing it's not enough that really makes it bad but like i just had trouble getting engaged with it but like at a certain point in the movie when i did kind of at least understand the rhythms and i really respected what it was trying to accomplish with respect to like what it was doing with these kids and how it was kind of doing it from even if there's not that many pov shots like you're still like you're still kind of trying to be put in the mindset of like one of these kids is like and i really appreciated that and i was like oh it would be something really interesting if this movie just kind of ended and it turned out that like you know they just like got confused and their parents were there all along or something like that and this is just like all really in the mind of the kid and all kind of built up there and it's not exactly that at the end i was like uh, i don't i i don't know if i'm totally here for this if i'm totally getting the point of this i kind of liked where it was the idea of where it was heading even if the execution like, was it really my thing at the same time? That doesn't mean I can't be like weirded the fuck out by that blood. You know, like I, there, 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 there were still like isolated moments like that, that were definitely unsettling to me. I just don't think it, it was like unsettling to me, like consistently for like all hundred minutes. Like, it seems like it got to a lot of people. I don't know that I fully agree with the idea that if they had kind of pulled the rug out from under you at the end, that would have been very satisfying. I think that I, guess, I, think, that it, like, I think that it makes sense to stay in this kind of mode through the entirety of the film. I don't know if I needed to be a whole full pull rug out from under you thing. I would have been fine if it was even more ambiguous than it was though. And you, you could be like, oh, maybe it was something like that. There wasn't. That's fair. Um, I do think that in externalizing this sort of, the, the sort of terror that these kids are undergoing, I, I do kind of think that it does somewhat rob it of its power. While I do believe that like you can interpret it a, another way, like for me, the moment that there was the option to mm-hmm. sort of like see a monster that was actually there in the dark. Well, that just confirms these children's fear. And then it becomes like in becoming less esoteric and more material, 
I don't know. It becomes a, just a, a hair less scary, which is weird from coming from me because I am somebody who generally in their horror prefers stuff that is more grounded in reality. But for the sake of a film like this, for the sake of dealing with childhood fear, I mean, when you're a kid, you think there's monsters and there's not. And you know that kind of, but in the dark, you really don't. So I think that I, I can kind of agree with you there. Um, something I did want to point out before I need to, make note of the sound yeah this is such a like the soundscape does a lot of work here like uh, uh there the, the audio of this film is very very muffled to like kind of like fit in with that grainy I, I was gonna ask you guys what you guys made of the choice to like not even because there's moments where it's like they put like closed captioning on the screen where you can't even hear what they're saying and what you kind of thought of the, the cho- choices like that throughout apparently the director was very influenced by like certain forms of like internet horror like creepypasta stuff that honestly is not really like my realm of expertise i don't know anything about that world so uh the analog horror stuff and like he was intending to do i think the entirety of the movie in that sort of subtitled fashion but there were some line reads some things that the cameras picked up or the, the mics picked up that he just really liked so he would keep those like you know Mm -hmm. the takes from like those kids uh the line reads from them like he would just keep them and not muddle the audio from them so um and i thought that that was a very effective sort of um choice i I know it just kind of sung and then when you get to like the uh the jump scares i swear to fucking god that phone man (laughs) that fucking fisher price phone i mean that one is was so I've got to say that was like one of my favorite moments in a horror I've experienced in a movie theater because there and you know I hopefully whoever's listening to this has already seen the movie I'm not spoiling a jump scare uh, but there's a shot of like the you know that Fisher Price phone with the eyes that's in Toy Story yeah it's, um, it's, it's honestly kind of unsettling in Toy Story three too so it's kind of funny that this movie like used it, <laughs> yeah, used true, it pretty true. effectively as well. So there's like a shot of it in the dark and you can just barely see the eyes. The eyes. And then it just comes into full view. And there's like this huge jarring sound that is like genuinely ear piercing. It's like the loudest I've ever heard a sound in a movie theater kind of level. And it it, it just completely shocked all like, I don't know, half dozen people in the audience where I was. And one girl, a couple rows up from me, literally started crying. Like she just started hysterically crying and she just couldn't stop for a couple minutes. Hmm. Um, And it wasn't even right after that. It's like after that shock, like she just was not prepared for whatever would come next. It was a I mean, I feel bad for her in a way, but also, man, that's that's a true power of cinema moment, baby. Like that is why we go to the movies. We go to for stuff to move us however it can and uh the fact that i we got i got to have that experience with that girl you know hats off to this filmmaker dude the people in my audience like a lot of people walked out but then some of them came back with like popcorn and twizzlers (laughs) is there like a less popcorn and twizzlers (laughs) movie than this and i bet you that a lot of people i'm assuming that like at the toward the end of your showing you you got a lot of like comedians coming out of the audience There, there was a guy they the audience was surprisingly respectful considering the movie but at that moment you were talking about that big jump scare afterwards they like could not take it seriously anymore and some guy went like like started making funny noises and people were laughing at it (laughs) but (laughs) i was too invested at that point it didn't matter well i'm glad for that at least yeah i was expecting to see some weird audience reaction in mind there was there's probably only like five or six other people there but at the same time if you seek out a movie like this you probably have a more of a stomach you know, than you might for other movies. So. Yeah, I will say that, like, I have found, I remember 
going to see Smile on Friday night with Gage and Andrea. And that was fucking awful. Um, I have found that I think for now on for horror films, I'm going to try to shoot for like an early matinee showing or like the Thursday preview showings where like if it's a Thursday preview, the people there are all horror people. Uh, so I, I, that's what I, well, try I was going to say. You got to strike a balance because like some horror movies like you could I mean, it, they might suck to see with a bad crowd, but like. If you can get the right one, well, the like, thing it, is, it well, the thing the is, the thing is, you go thir- if you go on a Thursday, which is where we, me and uh, Gage and Andrea saw Barbarian. The horror people will Great. show up. Yeah, the horror people they consistently show up for these movies like as early as possible. Um, so uh, like the last one, I, Megan, I saw like on a Thursday, like first showing, and uh, yeah, like I had like a a decent sized crowd for that one. It's funny you say that. Cause I think I saw X on a Friday night. The first time I saw it, it was just an awful crowd. So <laughs> really? then, yeah. Yeah. Friday night, everyone's there to see the movie. And when I say everyone's there, like half the people are there just to be in a room and talk to each other while a movie plays in the background. Yeah, General audiences. Yep. I saw, but, I saw X the first Friday night. Yeah. Megan was actually the great equalizer for me where halfway into it like the people there got into the movie and shut the hell up and we actually all watched it together and had a great time when we get to when we, when we later in the podcast i'll have to ask what moment in the in the in, in megan did that um <laughs> uh gage i i i wanted to throw it to you for a second because uh daniel daniel mentioned this the sound in skinnamarink was there were there any were there, were there any other moments where like you know the 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 sound design really kind of like struck stuck with you i love how um the sound, the ambiance changes from shot to shot. So you can almost tell where the camera's positioned in the house, depending on what the sound is like. Hmm. You mean whether it's like a small room or a large room or a large space or something? Yeah, like in, in most movies, when shots change, it's supposed to be seamless and the room tone is supposed to sound the same no matter where the camera's hmm. positioned. But in this one, you can actually hear the ambiance change as the camera moves around the room, which makes it feel, you know, more grounded. Like there's an actual camera and you're actually in the space. Additionally, I, I really am a big fan of the fact that they use those hard coded subtitles to, um, to kind of clarify the audio when it's too warbled. And that to me is like almost just a testament to how unrelenting it is and its vision and how un- uncompromising it is where the movie's not going to go back and like clean up audio to make sure you understand everything that's being said. You know, sometimes it's scarier when you can't understand it, if it sounds like it's underwater and uh, the use of the subtitles there, I'm not sure if it's been done in YouTube horror before. I don't watch that. That's not my thing, but um, I thought it was, it's the first time I've seen it used in this way in a movie. And I thought it was really effective. I will say that I watched this and I'm like, maybe I ought to. Yeah, it's good. I did watch the short film he made as kind of like a proof of concepts before this mm-hmm. called Heck. And it, it it's more Skinnamarink, if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> if you watch Skinnamarink and thought like, I need more of this, uh, it's on there. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, if you uh, have a movie that is as profitable as this one is, you presumably will get a chance to do something a little more. I'm wondering, you know, what kind of direction a guy like this goes in. Will he want to just like try and see how something like this can be made with even more resources or will he just, you know, make a traditional horror movie or something? That's uh, How do you follow this up? I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know, but like, I'm assuming he'll, you know, have an opportunity to do so. Um, I don't know, Daniel, uh, what else about this? Haven't, haven't I touched on already that you'd like to talk about? 
the, the thing is with this film is that you know I mean, it I get is it. it's so more about much... a, it's more about a feeling than plot points you know there's only correct, so many ways you can describe correct them. it is so much about like the experience of watching it that there is ultimately kind of very little to say um mm-hmm. because there's only a few isolated moments of like a quote-unquote you know a thing that happens it is about just getting into the space remembering what it was like to be you know in that world i should ask uh you know not to get too real in the in the, in the pod cast but like gauge uh did you have any yeah. sort of similar experiences growing up that this keyed into to an extent i mean i just remember being creeped out you know being in a dark room with a television playing and trying to find comfort in whatever's on that television but kind of knowing that it can actually help you if mm. someone was in that room there with you. And of course there's the childhood fear of like just being alone, your parents not being there. But specifically, I remember being afraid of the idea of eternity, like dying and going to hell or even going to heaven, being somewhere that um, that I couldn't escape from no matter how bad I wanted to. And the movie really tapped into that for sure. Towards the end, when you know that text pops up on the screen that just says, 572 days or whatever and you learn that this kid has been trapped alone in this upside down darkened house for well over a year and seemingly doesn't need to eat doesn't need to drink and exists only to be tortured it reminded me a lot of a uh, of a book that i read as a kid or a short story that i read Bro, what, what were you reading have you guys read i have no mouth and i must scream oh i've heard of this yeah no i can't say i have it, it's a famous harlan ellison story it's not long i'd recommend it but it the more I think about this movie, the more I'm reminded of it, where it is essentially the same thing, where uh, it's a kind of a sci-fi take on this story, but the world's been taken over by an AI who hates humans uh, and hates that it has been created. And there are very few humans left on earth and they kind of exist in a quasi simulation that the computer's running where it just tortures them for eternity. And their goal is to kill themselves so they can escape like the eternal torture. I read that probably like way before I should have, I was probably like 11 or 12. Uh, And this movie really taps into that. Just the idea of, you know, something beyond your control, torturing you forever. And there's no escape. Uh, it's, It's a lot for a kid to handle. And I and I and I also hear what you're saying. I like you know at that point in the movie, like it just it it became a lot more perilous in some ways, uh, in at least in the minds of the children themselves. But I think it's kind of interesting that like so much of the I guess first half of the runtime, I, I don't think they're being confronted with those same you know questions, and they're not hearing these other voices uh, be quite as threatening to them at that point. But I, I I do think it's kind of a neat trick how it's like we're probably just as scared. We're probably way more scared than they are for at least that part. And I think the movie is like really effective in like putting the audience in that headspace, even if the kids aren't yet. Uh, so I think that it's kind of cool how that does shift a little bit as the movie goes on. Even if like I said, I've already said, like I didn't necessarily have that strong of a personal reaction to the thing. I still kind of appreciated what it was doing in many isolated moments. Gage, any other parts of the movie that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you guys about yet, whether it be something technical or uh, plot wise? Yeah, I'll just echo what Dan said mm-hmm. and said, like, some movies are stories and some movies are rides. Mm. And this movie is a ride. Um, it's well maybe the most impossible movie to recommend since Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> where like, I just have no idea if, if it's going to work for you or not. 
and you just got to watch it for yourself and find out. You know what's weird is that like when Napoleon Dynamite came out, I, I, I guess I, you guys, I guess, are two or three years younger than me. But like, so I guess it came out around my sophomore, junior year of high school. And that sounds right. I remember like really not liking it the first time I watched it. I don't remember what, what yeah. setting I watched it in. Uh, maybe it was with some friends that were talking a lot, I guess. Maybe that was it and I wasn't hearing it as well. I don't remember why, but for whatever reason, I watched it in somewhat of a different setting the second time. And I actually like really got into it. Uh, and who knows? I don't know if that humor would work for me today, 12, like 13, 14 years later. Uh, but like, maybe that means I need to give Skin and Break another chance, you know? Not at all the same kind of movie as Napoleon <laughs> Dynamite, but uh, esoteric enough that like maybe it would just click for me in a different way if I maybe watch it, you know, at home and as opposed to in a theater when I kind of at least know a little bit more what I'm getting myself into. I think it'd be a great double feature. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually heard, I have actually heard that um, there are some people that say that like they had a, perhaps a better experience watching Skin of Marink at home because I guess the analog, like being scared of the dark at home sort of nature of it. Um, personally, I found it's far easier for me to get into the sort of rhythm of something like this in a theater with a good sound system, you know, um, maybe if you had like some, like a good five, point one sound system or whatever at home uh and you know you turned off all the lights and had a big screen maybe you could evoke that same sort of fear but like you know uh, different strokes i suppose i guess i'm also concerned because like i, I was kind of bored for decent amounts of the runtime in the theater it just wasn't as engaging to me again so it's like what, what what would happen if i'm like at home with like potentially more distractions would i stay as zoned in i don't know that's what like, i that's what i wonder that's what i wonder i mean i try and do a pretty good job of being disciplined about not second screening when i'm watching stuff at home but you know it happens and uh oh it happens I, all the time for me yeah right so it's like i just don't know if like i if i'd be able to like be as disciplined if I were watching this, but I'm not opposed to giving another shot, even if it didn't totally work for me. But I mean, again, I, again, I personally, I would still recommend it. If, if, if you have any desire, if, if you have a, any interest in beyond more so than I do in horror as a genre, I think you're going to certainly uh, find stuff to appreciate. And even if you're not as big of a horror guy like me, like you're still going to, you know, up, like you're still, you still can't help but respect how it, it, it's commitment to its, uh, to its conceit and, how it goes about accomplishing what it wants to accomplish. So you can, you can appreciate that and still not even be that into the movie, which is how I would describe my experience. So um, if you have a chance to see it in a theater, I mean, you, maybe you get, maybe you get it with the right crowd too, like we talked about. So uh, what you, do you want to hear my alone in the dark story? What is your alone in the dark story? So this was like, I guess, senior year of high school. Gage has heard this story before. Uh, it was like senior year of high school. And I was, I had gotten into some kind, of, some kind of argument at home or like, you know, I was in trouble at school or something like that. And I just, I had spent a couple of days bouncing around friends' houses. I hadn't been home. I uh, hadn't talked to my mother at all. And one night, this was like in winter time, like after Thanksgiving. And one night, all of my friends were like, yeah, we can't have you here tonight. So I was like, all right, well, I need some place to be. It's very cold outside. And I knew that there was a house in the neighborhood that had always been abandoned, like it had always been like, you know, vacant. Um, so then I was like, well, you know, I can just spend the night there and then tomorrow and, you know, see what happens. So I go around the back of this house and I managed to somehow get the door opened in the back and I go in and it's the exact same layout as my house that I lived in. Um, it's the exact same floor plan as the house. So I'm like, okay, so I know exactly where to go in the dark. So I go over across the living room space, all empty, of course, nobody's living here. Um, and I go into what would have been my brother's room in the corner. I go, I lie down in the nice carpet and I start going to sleep, right? 
at some point, I don't know how long I was in there. I'm lying there and I stop and I listen and I think, is there somebody in this house? And so I sit up and I stop and I really listen and yep, I can hear it. Heavy bootsteps are going across the living room toward the uh, kind of hallway that my room that I'm in is in. I realized at this point that perhaps the reason I was able to open the door in the back uh, was because somebody else has been using this as their home. So I listen furiously closely to, to figure out where this guy is going, where this person is going. And I hear them going into the corridor very slowly, you know, walking down into the room across the hall. And then I hear nothing. And I'm like, well, what can I do here? And after running through the options, I just go, all right, I'm just going to go into the corner of this room. I'm going to curl up. I'm going to wait for daytime where I can actually see and uh, see what happens. So I, that's exactly what I do. Uh, I don't know how many hours pass by. Eventually, I see the sun's up. I can see, see my way through the house and uh, I take off my shoes. I, I walk across the tile slowly, cautiously. I make it out the door, I go home, and I never do that shit again. <laughs> I'm surprised that story didn't come up during the Barbarian podcast. I thought you were going to say, like, I walked outside and it turned out it was in the middle of the hood. <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or it's like it's kind of like the Justin Long character coming back and realizing someone's there. Um, yeah. And, well... That's uh, I'm, 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 I'm one of the I'm, scariest I'm, stories anyone's ever told. Man, just dropped it. The so sca- scariest story anyone's ever told on this podcast. Glad you're alive and here today. Uh, so I appreciate you. Uh, you know, and that everything. was, and you know, I found out later that that was in fact the skin of a rink. I was in, I was in the house with the skin of a rink. <laughs> that, 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 that's a great way to end that discussion with a, uh, you know, something. Uh, honestly, uh, um, like I said, something that deserves its own spoken word Grammy. Uh, let's 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 move on. We're going to talk about Megan. Uh, Megan is the uh, newest film from uh, Blumhouse. It uh, has a story credit by, you know, James Wan, who, you know, Daniel and I discussed a movie of his last year, Malignant. And uh, it's it's uh, written by Alex, uh, uh, Akila Cooper, who also wrote Malignant and directed by Gerard Johnstone. It stars Allison Williams. She is a you know, kind of like a, a, a robotics person that works at a toy company and manuf- where they kind of, you know, try and create different toys. But her niece, uh, Katie, is in a fatal car accident with her parents who don't make it out. Gemma is next of kin. Gemma is Allison Williams' character, if I didn't say that. But G- Gemma is next of kin. She ends up taking custody of Katie and doesn't really have a maternal bone in her body, doesn't really know how to entertain her in her house. But Katie comes across an old robotics project of Gemma's from college and is uh, quite taken by it. Shows more interest in anything than she has since she got there. That gives Gemma the idea to finish this other uh, toy robot that she had been scolded at work for spending too much time on. That turns into uh, Megan, who becomes, you know, great, great friends with Katie. But all of a sudden, you know, might be a little more to her than meets the eye. And maybe there's something sinister going on there. Uh, guys, this movie, I mean, I think we were probably all pretty excited for it to some extent because it had a pretty good trailer. Uh, I think uh, everyone was coming in with, uh, came into this with some pretty high expectations for what kind of, you know, uh, deranged, uh, campy film they were going to get. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. I've been, you know, I mean, again, in the, in the movie got really good reviews. I do. I think our, our letterbox circles and other people I follow on letterbox, they were maybe a little more tempered in their reaction to it. And I'm wondering, uh, maybe I'll start with you, Gage, because I started with Daniel for the first movie. I'm wondering, uh, 
I think everyone going into a movie like this, they're, they're kind of expecting it to, you know, just be something that's like, uh, at least what I kind of understood it as why my friends and I were excited to, we like, we kind of went in just like expecting some like really goofy fun. And I think I might've enjoyed the movie more than you guys um, based on what I saw in your letterbox ratings. But at the same time, I don't know if it was necessarily anywhere near as funny as I had hoped or like had as many funny moments outside the trailer as I would have hoped. And I also don't know if it's especially like also at the same time, if it really is ever all that scary, I'm wondering uh, what, what did, did you, did you kind of get out of Megan, what you wanted to get out of it or were you, uh, or did you think maybe it was like kind of lacking in one or both of those departments? You know, I kind of unhyped myself for Megan okay. before I saw it because I heard that it was PG 13. That's never ah, a I good forgot sign. about that. Yeah. Uh, I heard that it was kind of playing more towards the Zillennials or the Zoomers and like wasn't going to be super gory, was kind of going to be more funny. And I I actually kind of avoided watching it for a while. Um, And I knew that I was going to talk about it on this podcast and I've gushed on every movie that I've talked about so far. So I needed a movie to hate on. I needed something to criticize. But honestly, man, this movie's the anti-skinamarink. It's a crowd pleaser. It's a hell of a good time. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, its strength does lie in not its scariness, but just how funny this movie is. It knows what it wants. To, uh, it knows what it is. Yeah, this this to me, you know, it's going to draw comparisons to Malignant just in terms of like, oh, it's bonkers, dude. And it, while it never really reaches those highs, it's not nearly as violent or gonzo. It's not going to like make your jaw drop open like the ending of Malignant did. I think it is far more consistently funny than Malignant was. This is a horror comedy. Uh, it is equally funny and, and scary. That's my. That's probably not even true. It, it's it's much more funny than it is scary. But it's not winking at you when it's funny. It, it has a straight face. Um, the 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 way that I kind of see it is that a lot of horror movies have an on and off funny switch. It's like, okay, this is a funny scene. There's going to be jokes in this scene. Mm. And then the next scene, okay, th- we turn that off because this is a scary scene. And now this is a touching scene. This one is more like uh, uh, like a gauge, like a, uh, a needle quivering on the funny scale uh, where like every scene is kind of funny, but also kind of nerve wracking. Well, I think, yeah, I think part of it, part of what it has going for in that regard is like, I mean, I don't know if you guys would agree for me, like the funniest parts of the movie were just like whenever any time it went to Megan for a reaction shot. I don't know why it just killed me. And I, I, I just I, I, it was just like treating this like thing as like something that like in the same way you would like, you know, just cut to a regular human for a reaction, except uh, her face doesn't move in the same way. It's like a tilt of a head in response to a point someone else makes just made me kind of like lose it on multiple occasions. So I certainly respect it in that regard. And I'm glad you brought up the rating because I meant to bring that up when I entered the movie. And it was something I think I talked to you about a little bit, Daniel, before we uh, before we before either of us saw it. But we were talking about doing this and we were kind of skeptical about that. And that obviously did worry me a bit, too. And I I kind of left the movie thinking like and I in I. And while I did kind of like criticize it a little bit before I threw it to gauge there again, I did like it. It's just there, there was, I, I kind of think maybe for me, it maybe put a too many, too many of the good things in the trailer though. I don't necessarily blame them that much for it. Cause the trailer obviously got people pretty excited and a lot of people went to see this movie, but I think 
I, part of it, so, but, but again, I still think I was worried. My misgivings aside, how about maybe, maybe too many of the good things were in the trailer. I was worried about the rating and that didn't actually, I don't know if that really held it back for me that much. Like there were still some moments in there that like made me squirm in the way traditional, like, you know, gory moments that might earn a movie in our rating might make me squirm. Like there's a moment where Megan's almost pulling a kid's ears off. There's another other couple moments <laughs> where she's doing some murdering. And it's like, this still seems pretty intense, even if I'm not seeing a lot of blood. So as someone that like at least had that uh, that had that R, uh, PG-13 rating on your radar going in, did you think that held the movie back at all or were your issues with it in uh, other parts of its execution? Um, well, I don't think what held it back is necessarily a lack of violence per se. Mm-hmm. Um, although maybe, maybe it is tied into that. Um, I do feel like whereas Gage underhyped himself, you know, he managed to underhype himself. I feel like I went in with pretty strong expectations off of malignant mm. and uh yeah i just i wanted something a little bit crazy i wanted something that made me kind of laugh incredulously what did you think what did you think this doll was gonna do that she didn't end up doing i don't know uh, mm. i do i wanted something that i, I couldn't you. predict i wanted like i did with malignant right like well and, and that's and that's one point i actually wrote going into this it's, it's not fair to really I, I don't know if it's super fair to compare stuff to malignant but when it's the same team you know they're kind exactly, of inviting those exactly when it's the when it's the screenwriter you know combo like i just yeah i just kind of had it like okay it's it's got to be more than what's in the trailer and truthfully it wasn't the trailer has right. almost all the like horror set pieces almost all the comic set pieces and also one thing that i think would have got we would have gotten a lot of mileage out of it and one thing that we talked about i, I remember talking about how the like the, the sequence of like it's really maybe only a few minutes even though it felt like a lot the sequence in malignant leading up to the big reveal it like is drawing from like a few different corners of that movie. It's edited together very well. It's very propulsive. And that's something that was, they, they, they hid their twists in the trailer. Not that there's really a twist in the same way. in Megan, you know, you're going to see the deranged killer robot movie, whereas yes. malignant, you know, it, it, it's, it's aiming to surprise in a different way, but at the same time, again, at least it had something really going for it. And it has a very memorable sequence that like sticks with you. That like uh, was just incredibly, incredibly uh, in, intense and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and just like compelling and like I said, propulsive and, uh, there's just n- nothing quite like that, that kind of like surprises you or gets your heart maybe racing in the same way in Megan. Cause you kind of, you kind of know where Megan's going, even if it's still a fun ride. So exactly. Like it, it is, you know, the killer robot movie and there, there are, it is funny. I laughed a pretty good amount in this. I was with a very good audience who was pretty game for, and you know, there are moments where I was like, this is the movie that I wanted to see very namely. I think the greatest moments of this movie are the moments that Megan starts singing (laughs) spontaneously. Those (laughs) are hilarious. It's not in the trailer. It's not in the trailer. Yeah, exactly. And like, that is the part of the movie that like, I was like, this is exactly what I want. Like, it is weird. It is. It's it's simple. But, you know, the fact that you have this killer robot girl doll that looks so uncanny, like breaking into spontaneous song as if she's in a Disney movie. That's inherently funny. And like the fact that it commits to that. You know, like like Gage said, this isn't like winking, like, hey, isn't this crazy that we're doing this? No, she commits to this song and like in in universe sort of it it works in the context that she is friends with a little girl who would love to have somebody singing her songs like this. It just works. That is exactly the kind of energy I wanted. But so much of the film is kind of just going through the motions of the general like AI is bad. 
our reliance on technology is bad sort of beats. And I should say another important distinction between this and Malignant is that Malignant is directed by James Wan, uh, who is a very you know, style, he's proven himself to become a very stylish director. Not a huge fan of The Conjuring, but, you know, yeah, the guy had, knows how to work a camera, knows how to pace a scene, you know, and like, I don't know who this guy is, Gerard Johnson, John Stone. I don't think he's done that much. And I think it's reflected in like the visual language of the film. I, I think just like the, I, there's a sort of like staidness, a sort of lack of like like craziness in the script. I think it is reflected in the visuals. It's very gray, you know, it's very, very dull. Like it feels like it could be like a, a slick Netflix movie. It's too slick. I'll say that. Um, yeah. And like, you know, I, I get it. It's about AI. It, the, the, the main character is like a cold lady. I get it. But because the script doesn't take enough of those swings, you know, you'd hope that like maybe the visual language of the film would, and it doesn't. I see what you're saying. I'm just trying to figure out like other ways. And I guess it's not on us to decide where else the movie should have gone. Like we said, like you kind of indicated before, like it should probably surprise us. I think at least at the ending, the stakes could have been much higher because they get ready to make more Megans, right? We're going to sell Megans all over the world. And yet they never actually produce one beyond the initial prototype. I was for sure there was going to be an army of Megans (laughs) at the end. That was going to like, you know, take over the world or at least, you know, a, a major metropolitan area. But no, they, they start selling the Megans without having built a single one, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's one way where they could have expanded the world. And that would have just, you're right. That would have opened up a ton of possibilities. Uh, the emotional core of this film, like I think what's there, it should hit a little harder than it does. I don't know that I'm a huge, huge fan of um What's the name of the actress? Allison Janney. It's not Allison Janney. It's not Allison Janney. It's Allison Williams. Williams. (laughs) I think Allison Janney could have pulled this off though. She if she had just been like you know a great aunt or something. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I think Allison Williams. Like I don't know. Like I'm. I wasn't really enamored by the performance. Although a big part of it is the character is you know again, she's just supposed to be like the like caricature of like a cold, you know, businesswoman lady. You know, uh who's saddled with this care. Um, And I think that that narrative, I think it, I guess it works, but again, because the filmmaking is so austere kind of, I mean, I like her as an actress and I, I, but like the character, there are a couple of times where it was like, as, as uh, much as it seems like she does value her career and she's a career driven woman. I thought it was kind of wild. How she was just like, actually it's like yeah i'll leave megan out here you know with all these regardless of if she had any inkling if she was dangerous or not like that that megan is like incredibly valuable at that point she's like i'm just gonna leave it in this pile of toys and kind of walk away oh yeah yeah and i will say that seemed very convenient for the plot this movie is dumb as shit it's it's not a smart movie there's all kinds of poor decision making and you know logical inconsistencies (laughs) you gotta say to that to, to that note what exactly was megan's plan at the end because like, uh, like she like did you want to lobotomize Gemma or something? No, but like she yeah, she, she was, my point is that she's like she like kill, starts killing people at the place, and I'm like you know they know, they're gonna know it was you. Like like she she takes over like it's like she tries to like frame the uh, like make it out like the uh, scientist died in some accident, but they're very quickly able to get out of it, and so like they would know that it she was the reason that that she they, she there's no way out like she, this this doll was going to die. You know, I yeah, don't know what her plan well, was. 
the movie straight up brushes that off when it says like you know you you used a an ai learning model that you didn't even understand to make this robot the movie doesn't want to engage with that at all do you remember that you remember small soldiers that david cross going like david cross going like you put military tech into toys Yeah, yeah. It's like, why is the single use case for Megan as a toy? You know, <laughs> why is this not a weapon? Why is the U.S. government not all over? It's because it's not that kind of movie. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, mind, it, I don't actually mind that. To be quick. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, I think we're all on board with the movie, more or less, to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. But like, you got to be down with the stupid shit if you're going to enjoy this movie at all, because it's the engine that makes the movie keep going. Well, my issue is this. I guess that it, it should be a bit dumber. <laughs> It should be a bit dumber. <laughs> yeah, it should totally. be a little more out there. Um, and it should be a little more, I guess, concise. Um, even though it is only like an hour, 40 minutes. Like, I don't know. Like there are, It takes a while for it to get going for me. Well, pretty much until Megan shows up on the scene. Um, and I commend that performance. Like, I believe what, that it's what, a real. What was, what was it that got your audience to be locked in? You said something about that earlier. Or is that Gage that said that? Yeah, Gage just said that. Oh. It, was, it was just like a gradual thing. Okay. Like the movie started, I think it was a Friday or Saturday night. You know, people were talking during the movie. People were walking in late. I was like, oh, here we go. But then sure enough, you know, by the time, I think just introducing Megan once she shows up and, uh, you know, starts doing her Megan stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were locked in. We were on board. People shut up and we watched the movie. And then by the time, you know, she's doing TikTok dances and killing people with doorknobs, uh, we were we were all having a great time. <laughs> I do like the uh, I, I, like I said, I do really like the child's perform. I believe it's a child who's playing her physically and then a different child is yep. voicing her, I believe. Yep. And, mm. um, you know, they're both working great in concert with one another. Um, I love like the, the first moment. I mean, we all knew what this movie was, but like nobody's being surprised. But that first hint that like there's something off with Megan is like during the like ad that she's showing the uh, executives of like the footage of um, Megan with the with the niece. She's like, you know, uh, Megan does. does, It's like like a montage or something. And she's like, Megan, you know, is programmed to never get tired of dealing with children or something like that. And then it's just Megan saying like, you know, to the daughter, like, like, uh, what's her name? Sarah or something like that. Sarah wash your hands like like in a very annoyed yeah the uh megan character is like a great vehicle for like physical comedy and 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 humor just because it's this lifeless doll that is like also kind of a smart aleck um one of i love like you know there's like a moment where like uh um allison williams tells her to shut down and her retort is like you know hold on i thought we were having a conversation and i heard an a, a woman in behind me go like oh she got some sass on her and those moments i thought were really great i think honestly yeah i guess one of the problems with this movie is that there's not enough megan okay so i was i mean i guess i was kind of curious about that because there's another movie even later on where she's like where did you really think this was going was like her response at some point like that and it was like i didn't know if you thought like th- that seemed like a natural progression of whatever this ai was or if it felt like kind of too forced like you could put the, feel the writer putting her thumb on the scale just to generate laughs but it seemed like those kind of different moments where you like see a little more personality from megan did work for you yeah no like the, the moments where megan kind of shows herself to be like a sort of like stuck up haughty sort of <laughs> like you know person like i i i enjoyed all those moments those are i think the moments where the you know the film's personality really does shine through all the kind of like i don't know bland looking visuals 
I, and I, I'd seen that a couple different places where people thought like maybe visually it didn't really add up to much, but it was just, I guess it, it does. It felt like a similar aesthetic to other horror movies. I feel like we've seen it. Was, honestly, like aesthetically didn't even feel this. The house was, so, it was somewhat was what I guess was smaller than like the houses in smile, but like, it, it, like color palette didn't feel that different. Um, well, yeah, smile is another movie that I would kind of complain about the visual. Right. It just, I guess I was just like, it wasn't anything like, it didn't stand out as being especially bad because it felt familiar. Not that that's like a, a great thing to be like, oh, this feels like something I've seen before. But like, mm. it didn't really jump out to me in that regard. It was more just that like, I guess I just expected, I, I guess I just expected a little more from, you know, filmmaking panache than I did anything else with the, uh, than I did anything else with this, like how it looked on its own. Uh, and like, I, I, there wasn't anything too special to the, to the action at the end as kind of funny as it was to watch like, you know, Megan, like just attack them once the lower half of her body was gone. Like, I mean, I guess there's something, <laughs> there's something kind of amusing about that too. But, uh, at the same time, I, like I said before, I just wish there had been a few more cool moments that weren't in the trailer, you know, besides, you know, whatever that yeah, the trailer was. does show like a lot. And I, and I, and I, that's the other thing I guess I would add is that like, like I said before, I think maybe having a fun trailer like that more to their credit, they like, they showed like, they, they had some restraint. They like only showed really probably a total of two seconds of that dance. But at the same time, there are yeah, a lot the of other dances and the dance is only five seconds. I get that, <laughs> that is true, I guess. Uh, it's like and I, I guess that that did have to be in there. That became a thing even before the movie came out. But there's other moments where it's like, you know, or maybe you didn't need the dance and you could they could have done the same viral marketing campaign they did. And they could have just had them dancing in the viral marketing campaign. And then uh, maybe it's a little more of a fun surprise when it shows up in the movie. I don't know. But like I like the I like that they got creative with the marketing. And I think if you're going to put that much thought and fun into that, then maybe don't spoil as much as your movie. I do want to say, I think I saw something that the screenwriter was saying that there either is an unrated version of Megan already that exists huh. or or maybe that like they would they were talking about doing reshoots to create like an unrated version. I think it was the former, um, which made certain sense to me. I, I It seemed to me like the kind of movie where like there's got to be like a <laughs> there's got to be like they, they had some violence in there and then they looked at the finished product and were like, you know, we could make this a PG-13 one. And then collect on the home video sales of, you know, or just like kids getting to go see it without needing a parent present. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, it's one where like it's not losing too, too much. But I also wonder if maybe uh, part of the reason that it is PG-13 that they did cut it down is because so much of the film is like, you know, like Megan is like a child played by a child and like she's interacting with children. Maybe the there's like scenes out that like put children in more peril than even we get in this film, uh, in in this version of the film, I should say. So, <laughs> I, I yeah, I, more? I <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Like I, I, I do think that like if this weren't PG thirteen, it maybe there's it's a better version of the film. So I guess it's just like I guess my thought is just like look, you see like a little kid get killed by a car get his ears pulled well, off you don't actually see him get killed by the car is the thing do you i don't know if you need to though it's like you, yeah, you, you see the shoe come off it's heavily implied <laughs> yeah i think like i think I, I think that just gets the job done you know something pretty effed up happened i don't know if really uh, I, I don't know do that can you compare that you, i mean we just talked about skin and and the visual of the blood you know going and then coming back and like that was that i mean if they, you they could have, they, about... yeah i guess they could have shown blood here and probably still kept a pg-13 rating like you don't ever see anything you don't see the thing going in 
into the, you don't see the knife going into his eye and skin and rink. Like, I think it's fine if that's left up to the imagination. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. But like, what I'm saying is that that's a film that manages to leave things up to the imagination and actually make it kind of affecting. Whereas yeah. I feel like with this film, uh, they don't do that. And a part of me wonders if maybe they just push the boundaries a little further in this studio horror movie, like in the unrated version. Andrea and I were actually discussing that. It, I think Skin and Rink was released unrated, but it was. I was wondering, would it be PG-13 or R? And part of me even wondered, could you, could it possibly be NC-17? I don't think NC-17. I think really the only time you see blood is in that one little portion but like the fact that you're hearing like children screaming and shit like that's the thing that's the thing it's like once you're hurting a child that small in your film i think you could make a case for nc-17 which honestly in the age of streaming doesn't really carry any power anymore anyways i suppose but it carries power if you want to release something theatrically which you know shutter did so yeah um that's why they didn't rate it. Uh, Gage, any other final thoughts on Megan? I'd recommend it. You know, I had a good time with it. I think as much as I hate this term, hate, hate, hate this term, I'm going to use it. This is the type of movie you kind of just turn your brain off. Not that there's nothing to chew on at all. You know, there are themes here. There is stuff going on, but you, you got to accept how stupid the movie is. This is the movie where the girl does the TikTok dance and then kills you with part of a printer. Speaking, That's of, what it is. speaking of themes, Dan- Daniel, I'm guessing you weren't all that compelled by anything the movie was trying to say about how we like we outsource parenting to technology and screens too much. No, because I don't know, like every single fucking movie about AI and technology today, like does this same sort of shit. Sure. Um, I do think that like the emotional beats, I think that if the emotional beats were, you know, they, if they landed a little harder, I'd probably be a little more enamored with that. These sorts of themes that, that it's exploring. I don't want to say that, like the, the fact that um, Allison Williams is able to come up with that speech at the end to the kid where she's like, you know, perfectly after a the kid whole is film, like shit for like the last. Uh, yeah. And like this, clearly she's totally unprepared to take care of a child or have this sort of like emotional sort of con- it's it doesn't seem that Allison Williams understands emotions, um, but then she's able to finally sit her down and connect with her toward. I mean, I know it's a screen. It's a film. It's a it's, a, it's not a particularly smart film. I understand all these things. But a part of me is like, well, that's this kind of thing where like I think if the if that's a if that sort of conversation, if that sort of uh, relationship had been better sold through the visuals, like I think that, um, or the craft of the film, I should say, um, I think that that the themes I think would have I would have found more interesting and compelling. Yeah, I guess you know I think they do a good job of establishing her as the kind of person that's just going to have trouble connecting with a kid like that. But I do think there maybe could have been I don't know a few more scenes like the one where she first talks about the her college robot. I'm, is it same? I forgot what his name was, Bruce, something like that. Uh, yeah, something like that. I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Like, uh, there could have been some, a little bit more there where you've seen them interact a little more and struggle, but like still show some level of affection for each other. So it doesn't necessarily feel like it's maybe coming out of nowhere quite as much to, to the point where Katie's just willing to like, you know, take her side at the end. Any Anything else, Daniel, you want to touch on before we wrapped up? Uh, you know, just not a huge, not a huge fan of this one. Admittedly, I think that I, I would still kind of recommend it simply because I know that there are people that did rather enjoy it if you go in assuming that this is going to be more of a comedy and with that mindset i think you'll probably get something out of it but i mean i think it's a pale imitate like it's it's i'm mean, not an imitation but i don't know just see just see malignant i mean that's what i'm gonna say just see malignant if yeah. you're like hey <laughs> i kind of want to see the movie where the robot girl does a tiktok dance i don't know see malignant it's gonna be more fun 
Yeah. And that, and that, that was, and then go listen to Daniel and I's podcast on it. That was one of the better ones we did last year, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, guys, before we wrap up, Daniel, anything else you've been watching recently you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Um, well, I've been doing like, you know, 2022 catch up this actually just today before we recorded, I saw Babylon and uh, yeah, messy movie. I could understand why it rubbed people the wrong way, certainly, but I found it to be very bombastic sort of fun uh i think that it is yeah it's an indulgent film like you know damien chazelle loves hollywood he loves the process of filmmaking and you know he kind of puts that all on screen warts and all in a way that i found you know very compelling i i was really taken by it and uh yeah he's still my guy i'm still a huge fan of everything that guy does also shout out to samurai wolf which is a hideo gosha movie from 1966 um very much like a like a like the chenbara version of a b western uh you know very very simple no frills plot it's like 70 minutes long great action very stylized you know in that uh gosha sort of way yeah fun movie highly recommend it Gage, anything else you've been watching in the last couple of weeks or just at all that you'd like to, you know, direct people to things you want to plug you've seen that you liked recently? Uh, I've been watching Copenhagen Cowboy and The Last of Us television show. Copenhagen Cowboy is the new the new Reffin show. It's the new Nicholas Wine Reffin show on Netflix. Uh, Last of Us, not as good as the video game. Copenhagen Cowboy would make a great video game. Interesting. Very surprised you're watching The Last of Us show, to be honest with you. I, I played the game. I loved the game back in the day. So I was like, I'll, I'll give the TV show a chance. It's not blowing me away right now. As somebody who never played the game, it just seems to me like a weirdly, I, I think it's fair to say, creatively bankrupt enterprise. Um, because the game is so much of it is like so much of the power of the game, from my understanding, is the fact that you are playing through such this like cinematic curated sort of experience and just translating that to live action. I'm, I'm hearing people who are like, oh, man, I really love the show. It's exactly like the games, like it's shot for shot even. And I'm like, how is that a good thing? Like, how is that a good thing? Like, I if, totally. it's just taking out the part that made it unique. We've, we've, I think, had this talk before, but the way I keep coming down on it is the whole appeal of The Last of Us was like, wow, this video game is good enough to be an HBO show. And now it's an mm-hmm. HBO show. It's like, wow, this HBO show is good <laughs> enough to be an HBO show. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little kind of like burnt out from the whole prestige TV enterprise, to be honest with you. I tried House of the Dragon yeah. and I just couldn't stick with it. Also because um, the person whose HBO Max I was on uh, canceled it. So um, <laughs> that, that also does it. Thing. Oh, I appreciate that. And you know what? I still won't watch House of the Dragon, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll just say I'm enjoying House of the Dragon. No, no, I did not actually enjoy House of the Dragon <laughs> that much. I did kind of stick with it because it was there wasn't a ton else going on at the moment when it was. Right, right. Uh, but like, uh, I'll say I, Last of Us, I, I'm not a video game player and I did enjoy the first two episodes. You can, it can work. It, it, so it really also works if you don't know shit about the video game like I do. I, I was very confused listening to people talk about the video game. In fact, like, it's so cinematic. It looks like a movie. I'm like, wait, how does that like, how, how does that work? Like, what are you actually trying to like? if you're just watching movie scenes, like, what does that even mean? How is that a game? And it was very confusing hearing people talk about it, but I still enjoyed the show. As far as other movies, uh, I, two, two things I, I, I saw, I saw, and that we might end up doing a podcast on together with, uh, Joe and Daniel at some point, I saw a man called Otto uh, last week, the Tom Hanks movie. I was very skeptical about it going in. Cause I'm like, Tom Hanks is America's friendly dad. Am I really going to buy him playing a grump? 
actually like hate hated to admit I was actually kind of charmed by the movie. It's worth seeing. I just want to point out that I pumped my fist. I still haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I just, I just, I just am so in the bag for it. Okay, so. but my, yeah. my next recommendation, I think you have an even bigger fist pump. I saw Post in Boots: The Last Wish on my birthday, uh, and it was really good. Uh, just, nice. just, just a delightful time at the movies. I don't even know if I had like the out of body, like you know, incredibly moving experience that a lot of people seem to have. But it's just like, it's just like really well done. I, I did watch the original Puss in Boots that morning too. That so it's funny. I watched two movies on my birthday: Puss in Boots and Puss in Boots the Last. <laughs> and but it, it was it was pretty cool how like they they're just like oh sure we'll make another one eleven years later and they actually did it really well. Daniel, anything you want to plug social media wise? Letterbox, Twitter, whatever. Yeah, you know me, Letterbox, felonious funk. You know, same old, same old. All right, Gage, you want to plug your letterbox or anything? Letterboxd, it's my name, Gage. You know, you gotta, you, you gotta get like a URL. You gotta craft a unique URL for your thing because I'm not gonna lie, Gage. I go looking for your letterbox page sometimes just to see what you've you know been watching and what you rated and all, and you know do comparisons. And uh, it's so fucking hard to find you, man. Like, it's, okay, it's Gage nine five nine eight. Yeah, I know. Like, a- come on, you can you can do better than that. We can do better than that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have felonious funk. That's generally my handle. <laughs> All right, as usual, I'm Josh Renovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on both Twitter and Letterbox. Podcast Twitter is at Real Pod. Podcast email is theRealMoviePod at gmail.com. Coming up next, like I mentioned, we might have an episode on both Puss in Boots: The Last Wish and A Man Called Otto. Uh, also coming up, I think, uh, I, I don't know the order in which I'm releasing everything I am recording right about now. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but, uh, I think I will be recording something at some point. Cause I got to be a best picture nominee completist. Someone is going to get drafted out of our group of friends to talk about triangle of sadness because it's the one best picture nominee. I have not done an episode on. So, uh, stay tuned for that at some point before the Oscars. Is there something else coming out this no, maybe there's nothing. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, no, 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 wait, no, wait, sorry, sorry. Weekend. No, it's, it's Triangle Sadness and Woman Talking. So someone's getting drafted to talk about both of those. So oh, I um, can't wait to be invited for the Women Talking podcast. <laughs> It'll be you, me, and Gage for that one, too. Yes, just need, all, just need a bunch <laughs> of dudes talking about that just to see if it, it just, yeah. just, just, just as a big. Men talking about women talking. <laughs> uh, hell yeah, bro. So hell yeah. I, I don't even have those planned, but those episodes are happening because I got to be a completist with the podcast on Best Picture nominees because that's just the way I am. So, yeah, that to look forward to with some uh, undetermined guests plus something on, uh, like I said, A Man Called Otto and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, most likely. So thanks to Gage and Daniel for joining me, uh, and we'll see you next time. Peace.